When uh, you're talking about leaders like Sally Yates or Merrick Garland who have lived in the Justice Department, who've been line prosecutors, who have done that work, you know, and understand the historical importance of the department and the necessary independence of the department. Yeah, you know, those are the kinds of people we need leading us right now. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Today, we'll be talking to Chuck Rosenberg. Chuck is an American attorney. He formerly served as a U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia and for the Southern District of Texas as a senior FBI official on the staff of two FBI directors, as counselor to the attorney general, as a chief of staff to the deputy attorney general, and as the former acting administrator of the DEA. He's been a frequent commentator on MSNBC and NBC, lending his expertise on a wide range of legal and policy issues. He's also the host of the MSNBC podcast, The Oath, with Chuck Rosenberg. And here's our conversation with Chuck Rosenberg. We've been living through this era of self-interest and dishonesty. Um, And so listening to your podcast is kind of a poignancy to it because it's really this series of conversations with people who um, have committed themselves to public service and have taken the oath of, 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 of serving the country, which I think is really interesting. So is that why you decided to do it? Is it is is the past four years been an influence on why you wanted to do this podcast? It had a lot to do with it. You know, um, in my role uh, as a contributor on NBC and MSNBC, you usually have about you know thirteen seconds to answer a really complex and nuanced question. So on one hand, I'm really glad that they you know gave me a little bit of a platform. Um, not that I think I deserve it, but on the other hand, it was frustrating because I think there were things we were talking about that required uh, sort of a deeper analysis, a deeper dive. That was part of it, uh, Ed. The other part was that I was deeply distressed by um, the way uh, the former president talked about uh, civil servants, the FBI, the intelligence community, the military community, you know, things that I had given my professional life to. And so I wanted a place where I could explain it a little bit better. And I wanted to do it through other people, people I knew about, people I knew, um, people I respected, people who had served honorably and well. I just thought there had to be a place where we could talk about that sort of stuff. I thought it was really interesting, the the sort of contrast between the guests. You know, you you speak to someone like Bob Mueller, um, but then also the Librarian of Congress, uh, Carla Hayden. And you would think that these two people would have nothing in common but really, when you dig deep, they do. They have this commitment to the oath they took to serving um, the public's trust. And I was curious if you find that there's a type, a type of person that sort of either by nature or nurture, they're just wired for this kind of work. Um, or do some people maybe just stumble into it later in life after, I don't know, maybe they've had a career in the private sector and they take this on? Or what have you found that's, that sort of runs through the similar thread that runs through all of these people? It's a great question. You know, I'm reluctant to generalize about a community of several million people. Um, I can tell you that I was drawn to it and that many of the people with whom I worked as a federal prosecutor and at the FBI were drawn to it. You know, do people stumble into it? Probably. Um, There's a lot of people who do it, but I think mostly people are drawn to it. And again, I hate to oversimplify because lots of folks do lots of things for lots of different reasons. But your point about Carla Hayden, the librarian of Congress, and Bob Mueller, the former director of the FBI, having a lot in common is exactly right. Um, And when I started the podcast, I spoke to people I knew. I mean, that's usually the easiest way to start something. So I I spoke to men and women from the justice community and then broadened it a bit to the intelligence community. But then I realized, uh, as your question suggests, that there's lots and lots and lots of people out there who do very different things. The Librarian of Congress, the woman who ran the Peace Corps, uh, a U.S. ambassador to Mexico, uh, the fellow who ran the National Park Service, who are all drawn to a different type of public service but for the same reason. 
Yeah. You know, I found when I was listening to the podcast, I was surprised how emotional I got because you're interviewing these really incredibly smart people who are all well-educated and very dedicated and you're shining a light on them and you're humanizing the government for you. Um, is this a bit of a love letter that you're trying to articulate that this idea of the government being this myopic thing that we don't understand is put in a black box that it humanizes it and you're trying to bring it alive for people? I was trying to humanize it because, you know, most, first of all, most people don't interact with the federal government. I mean, it takes up a lot of oxygen. We read about it. Um, people talk about it, but you don't really interact with the federal government. You interact with your local government. You vote, you go to a school board meeting, you go, uh, you know, argue with the tax assessor, a cop pulls you over and gives you a speeding ticket. Our interactions are at the local government level. And so the federal government, I think, is a bit of a mystery to most people. And I also found myself getting pretty emotional at some of the stories. Uh, Heather Penny, uh, among the first women to fly an F-16, talks about um, launching on the morning of 9-11, assigned to go intercept um, a commercial airliner inbound to Washington, D.C. This is before the planes on the tarmac uh, were hot all the time. They did not arm. They didn't have time to arm. And so she understood her mission to be a suicide mission, that if they found the plane they were looking for, they had to ram it. Um, there was no time to eject, as she described to me. You know, the worst thing in the world would be watching your plane soar over the target plane as you're floating down in your parachute. And so she and um, the uh, gentleman uh, who flew the other plane on that mission understood that it was a suicide mission. Uh, she tells a, a postscript to that story, which is fascinating. Her father, a retired um, fighter pilot in the Vietnam era, was flying commercial for United uh, at the time. And during that month was flying East, Co East Coast routes. And so she also understood uh, that uh, while she might die flying this mission to intercept that, that plane, she might also be killing her own father. And, uh, you know, those things are incredibly impactful. I think people are, are shocked at the level of commitment, uh, how serious uh, these men and women take the oath, uh, their, their, um, the mission, the duty, the honor, the integrity. You know, Bill McRaven was a guest of mine, the longest serving Navy SEAL in American history, retired four star. He tells a story about a visit to Walter Reed Hospital, which he would do routinely. Um, and on one visit, he was asked to visit uh, an army soldier who, uh, who had lost all four limbs in combat. Um, and he said it was uh, you know, reasonably shocking to see this young man uh, with um, four limbs missing. And a gentleman's name was Brendan Morocco. And he asked him, you know, how are you doing? And Brendan said, well, I'm, I'm fine, sir. He said, you're fine. He said, well, well yeah, of course I'm fine. There's lots of folks around here worse off than me. Uh, and Bill McRaven said, you know, I looked around it. There didn't seem to be a lot of folks worse off than Brendan Morocco. And he said, I have to ask you, your, your attitude, your spirit uh, is just astonishing. Uh, how? Why? He said, well, sir, I'm, I'm a young man. I had my entire life in front of me. And, you know, you hear these stories again and again, and, and they come up in different ways in different places at different times from different people, but they have a common thread, this notion of duty, of honor, of service, of integrity. And to your point, some of them are quite emotional. Um, I find myself getting choked up retelling them, and I've heard them before, I've told them before, uh, but they're incredibly impactful. They really are. I, you know, uh, I, I had to pushed pause a few times and started to recount a tale that I'd heard on the podcast to my wife. And I had to stop because I was getting emotional telling her these are really dedicated people. Here's what I want to understand about your perspective. You know, I'm in the branding business and I know that a few words said over and over can take on a, a, a power and a meaning that is greater often than it deserves. I'm interested, you know, in 1960, Kennedy says, during the inaugural address, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. 
And just 20 years later, Reagan famously says, government's not the solution to the problem. Government is the problem. And it, it's possible that I've hyper-focused on that over the last several years. You know, that, that that one sentence turned us in on ourselves. What do you mean the government's the problem? We, we are the government. I mean, it's, it, it's so shocking and sad that an American president would say that the self-governance we've been fortunate enough to have is the very problem that we have in our lives. And so I'm just curious as to whether or not this podcast that you're doing is a bit of an antidote to that. I hope so. Um, You know, you don't actually know um, whether or not you're having any impact, let alone the impact that you hope to have. Um, But we get thousands of emails uh, from listeners who said, literally, I had no idea, fill in the blank, uh, that that we did this, that we were capable of that, that we had people like this. And so, you know, are we making an impact? Is it making a difference? I hope so. I think so. Uh, I believe that the people who write to me believe that it is. But, you know, sometimes you feel like you're shouting into the wind. Um, That's not a reason not to do it. In fact, it's a reason to do more of it. and uh, I agree with you. I, I think uh, President Reagan's uh, description of the problem was not just wrong, but also pernicious. Um, this is us. This is how we govern ourselves. We rely on men and women um, you know, to work in our communities, to do lots of things, to teach our kids, right? To, um, to collect our taxes, to pave our roads. This is us. And uh, if we turn against it, we are turning against ourselves. Robert Mueller doesn't speak to anyone, but he spoke to you. I really enjoyed um, that two-part episode. So number one, I want to ask you, why did he speak to you? He's given no interviews to anyone. So, you know, folks, if you want to hear Robert Mueller talk uh, and speak about um, his life's work, um, you're going to have to hear it on the oath with Chuck Rosenberg. I mean, it's, he really doesn't speak to anybody. Um, But also I want to give you an opportunity here on our platform here on this show to tell people who Robert Mueller is, because I I find him to be one of the most impressive people um, in public life that that I've come across in a long time. Ed, how do you feel about a three hour answer? I, I listen, go, go. I'm for it. I love Robert Mueller. Uh, I had the privilege of working for him at the FBI. He was an icon in our world. I won't do this in three hours. I'll bring it in in less. Um, But he was an icon in the Justice Department. Uh, And I had the opportunity to work for him at the FBI on his staff as his counselor um, for national security right after 9-11. And he basically didn't talk to me. Um, He just worked. That's what Bob Mueller is. He just works. You literally would have stand-up meetings in his office because sitting down was incredibly inefficient. It took way too long. Uh, you know, over the course of his 12-year tenure as director of the FBI, if you added up all the time it would take to sit down and stand back up in his office, you're probably talking about seven or eight minutes over 12 years. Um, and that was just inefficient. Um, and you're quite right. He doesn't talk to anybody. I don't think he's going to give another interview. Um, so why did he talk to me? Well, a couple of reasons, I think. Uh, one is I asked. Uh, uh, and uh, two is that uh, I had worked for him and he knew me and he trusted me. And three is I'm not a journalist. right? I don't have to ask questions about uh, the uh, special counsel investigation or to try and pin him down on this or that. I just wanted him to tell his story, which is an extraordinary one. You know, he was a um, three uh, sport star athlete in high school. He played lacrosse at Princeton. He volunteered for service um, in Vietnam because a classmate a year ahead of him at Princeton, David Hackett, was killed there. And so uh, to Bob and to Bob's way of thinking, that's a reason to join. He led a rifle platoon along the DMZ. He was uh, wounded in combat and received the 
Purple Heart and the Bronze Star with a V device for valor. He said because he um, survived Vietnam, he felt he had an obligation to continue to serve. His greatest fear there was letting his men down. And in Vietnam, letting down your men meant that they would be killed or grievously wounded. And so when he came back, he dedicated his life to continuing to serve. Um, I, I adore the man. He's also a man of few words. So if you're looking for long, nuanced, thoughtful answers, um, you're not going to get them from Bob Mueller. But as I tell people, uh, for somebody who uses very few words, listen to each one carefully uh, because it's well worth it. In the first part of the interview, when we broke it into two, uh, segments. He talks about his childhood, about Princeton, about serving in Vietnam, and then returning to the United States. In the second part, mostly focus on his uh, stewardship of the FBI. Uh, I even tell one story, and if, if I may, I'd like to tell it here as well, about interviewing Please. with him, because it sort of illustrates um, the Bob Mueller I know and love. So I had knew of him, but I had never met him when I was ushered into his office on the seventh floor of the FBI building to interview for the job. And I really, really wanted it um, for lots of reasons, including that I wanted to serve my country again after 9-11. I had been a federal prosecutor for many years, but had recently left the office. I was hating private practice and I wanted back in. We had just been attacked. And so I'm ushered into the office. And uh, the man is standing behind his desk reading something with his back to me. He turns around. He walks from around the desk to where I'm standing. He doesn't say hello. He doesn't say how are you. He doesn't say welcome. He just says, why do you want to work here? And I answered the question. He said, why do you think you'd be any good at this? And I answered that question too. And my story about this is taking three times longer than the actual interview. The whole thing was 14 seconds. And he says, okay, thanks for coming by. And he ushers me out of his office. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, this man hates me. This is the worst interview of my entire life. Uh, there's no way in hell I'm going to get this job. And on the way out, there's a baseball on one of the shelves. I love baseball. So I said to him, uh, oh, I see you're a baseball fan, hoping to salvage the interview and you know, continue the conversation. And he says, nope. And out the door I go. And that was it. And an hour later, he calls me and says, um, he doesn't say hello, doesn't say thanks for stopping by. All he says is, uh, Bob Mueller here, when can you start? What was your answer to the question of why do you think you'd be any good at this? Oh, gosh, Perry. You know, um, as I recall, <laughs> um, I stumbled through both questions. But I said, because I love the Department of Justice. I loved being a prosecutor. Uh, I've worked closely with the FBI. This mission now is more important than ever, and I want to be a part of it. It was probably something like that, although... I'm sure, less eloquent. One of the things uh, that um, I really enjoyed was your interview with Jeremy Bash because he's triple smart, as we all know. And for the yes. record, you know, look, you went to Tufts for undergrad, you got your master's in public policy from Harvard, and you got your law degree from University of Virginia, which is one of the finest law schools in the country. Um, and he's another example of someone well-educated that has decided to pour himself into public service. But I think what I was particularly interested in was even now his reverence and admiration for Leon Panetta, whom you also did the podcast with. If you don't mind, talk a little bit about kind of how I was interested in how the system seems to really encourage great people to help tutor other great people on how to move through the system. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. In fact, I think that's exactly how it works. Whether or not it was designed that way, that's exactly how it works. I mean, I think about all the people who mentored me, uh, and there's not a damn thing I can do for any one of them, uh, except to mentor others. And I take that very, very seriously. In fact, I was just having this conversation yesterday with a student who I've been asked to mentor. Um, and it's incredibly important because I can never pay back Bob Mueller for the things that I learned from Bob Mueller. Um, I asked Bob about his mentors or the people he admired. And he talked about William Webster and Colin Powell. Um, and there is probably not a thing he can do for either of them except to help me. And there's not a thing I can do for him except to help others. And Jeremy, I think, had that relationship with uh, Leon Panetta. That Leon Panetta was, by the way, Leon Panetta is one of the nicest people on the planet. 
just a lovely, lovely person. Uh, and so interviewing him was a real privilege. I went out to um, uh, his office in Monterey, which is also not a bad place to go uh, to speak with him. But he, he also took that obligation seriously to nurture others in, in their careers and give them guidance and help them along the way. Uh, and I think Jeremy would be the first to tell you that uh, Leon Panetta did that for him and that working with Leon was a privilege, but it was also a pleasure. Uh, and that's how I felt working for Bob Mueller. I don't know that I always felt the pleasure part at 5.30 in the morning, uh, but I always felt the privilege part. You know, I've been thinking, you know, we just had an election and I've been thinking back throughout my adult life that anytime we have a new president and cabinet uh, appointments are being made, the three that people tend to focus on is the State Department, the Treasury Department, and defense. And I think that what's underappreciated, but I think there's a greater appreciation for it now, is how important the attorney general is and who sits in that chair and the ramifications of the wrong person sitting in that chair, what can happen. And so what I want to give you an opportunity to talk about is to kind of give us a little lesson, you know, maybe talk to me like I'm a smart 10th grader. What is happening over at the Justice Department? The people, the work that's being done, why it matters, um, the critical functions the Justice Department plays in, in the health of the country and the health of our democracy. And also um, describe in, from your point of view, what has been damaged in recent years and what it is that needs to happen going forward to repair and to have the Justice Department work for the American people the way it should? Only those seven questions, Ed? <laughs> I, uh, I feel like I'm in the class listening to a lecture, so feel free. Um, so first of all, it's interesting for me uh, to hear you characterize uh, state, treasury, and defense as the big three, because I always thought of it as the big four. Maybe that's just my bias coming out of justice. But with justice as part of that mix, those are the four oldest um, federal departments uh, that we have. And you're absolutely right, Ed, um, that having um, you know, seen uh, a Justice Department go off the rails over these last four years. And by the way, I don't mean that in a political or partisan way. I just mean that as, as a fact. Right. Um, really drives home how important it is to have stable, thoughtful, mature adult leadership at the helm of the Justice Department. You know, foreign policy can go, I guess, um, askew. Um, I guess, you know, monetary policy can go askew. There can be serious ramifications to that. But at the Justice Department, you're talking about life and liberty, um, that if we allow a president to begin to target his enemies and we have a Justice Department that favors um, presidential friends and allies and disfavors presidential enemies, uh, the damage is extraordinary to individual lives. You know, I've always said the Justice Department has to be two things. It has to be actually objectively fair but it also has to be perceived as actually objectively fair. If you're only fair, but you're not perceived that way, you're in deep trouble. And if you're perceived that way, but you're not actually fair, you're in deep trouble. And I think over the last four years, um, it was not perceived as fair, even though it's still got 99% of its stuff right. When we see high level intervention in criminal cases, um, Bill Barr, the former attorney general, weighing in on behalf of Roger Stone or Michael Flynn. Um, that is uh, it was shocking to me, and it's dangerous for our country. And I don't mean to be hyperbolic because I'm not hyperbolic by nature, yeah. uh, but I had never really seen anything quite like that. You know, to answer another part of your question, and by the way, if I'm not answering your question, don't let me get away with that. Make me come back and answer it. By design, the Department of Justice has an extraordinarily thin political layer, and I'll explain that. The FBI has 37,000 men and women who work there. About a third are special agents. The other two-thirds are intel analysts and scientists and professional staff. Of those 37,000 people, 
how many do you imagine are politically appointed? And the answer is one, the director, that's it. Um, I came up through the ranks as a federal prosecutor, as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia. Later in my career, I was appointed uh, to be the United States attorney for that office, so in charge of it. Um, I was the only political appointee in the entire office. Again, by design, a very thin political layer in recognition of the fact that the Justice Department has to be an other in American life that there are aspects of the Justice Department that are appropriately political, uh, such as the Attorney General, a member of the President's cabinet, you know, helping push certain legislative priorities of the President, or helping promote certain policies of the President, or helping the President in selecting judges and justices of the Supreme Court. Perfectly appropriate for an Attorney General to wear a political hat for that. But when it comes to the criminal enforcement mechanisms of the United States Department of Justice, there has to be an absolute firewall that you could never have political interference in the criminal enforcement mechanisms of the Department of Justice. And that's what we saw. And that was what was so shocking, so disturbing to those of us who grew up in that system. And so, you know, can it be fixed? Absolutely, it can be fixed. It's not that hard to fix it. You just stop interfering, right? I mean, that has been the tradition of Republican and Democratic administrations for decades. You, do, you draw a very, very strict line between the criminal enforcement work of the department and the political priorities of a president. So easy to fix. What's really hard to fix is the perception of what the Justice Department does. Mm -hmm. Because once you kind of you know, uh, spill ink in that milk, it's hard to get it out. Yeah, it seems to me that <clears throat> there are people there that, it seems to me that the culture is really important and the message from leadership is really important because in any large organization, you will have bad apples and you will have situations where people you know, make the wrong decision, but it becomes easier for those mistakes or those transgressions to occur if there seems to be this, loose attitude from the top or just just rank partisan or or self-interest being um utilized or, or or taken advantage of and then it it ripples through because we've seen that on the margin there were people at the justice department that seemed to kind of be in with it and then of course most people really fighting against it but I think whether or not you're talking about in the private sector with a large company or any organization, um, the, the, the internal politics or culture is interesting because I think there's a, a tension between people protecting their careers and their position of power inside an organization versus um, that voice inside their head saying, I need to do the right thing here. Well, that's right. And I think, look, you find lots of human traits distributed along a bell curve, right? Uh, height, intelligence. I'm not a golfer, but you know, golf scores. I'm, I'm sure there are all sorts of traits that are distributed on the bell curve. Uh, and every organization has a left tail of the, of the curve and a right tail of the curve, um, right? People who always do the right thing, no matter what, and people who never do the right thing, no matter what. And you'd like to think in the Justice Department and the FBI, your curve is shifted to the right, that overwhelmingly people do the right thing, or at least try to do the right thing. But what I always worried about when I was running organizations was not so much the, the left tail of the curve. You had to identify them and you know, uh, get rid of them or you know, demote them or you know, uh, ideally not even recruit them. Or even so much the right tail of the curve, the high performers who always did the right thing. I worried about you know, sort of the, the, the mean and one standard deviation to either side. And what are they hearing and what are they seeing and what's influencing them? Because in theory, they could move in either direction, right? And that's when you talk about leadership, you're really talking, I think, about the mean of your organization, the average of your organization, and those to one standard deviation of either side of the mean. And that's what worries me. With corrupt leadership, you send a signal through the ranks that it's okay to act in a corrupt fashion. So... 
if you take a high performing organization with a bell curve that is shifted to the right with a very small left tail of underperformers, but you let that rot set in over a long period of time, what are you doing to the average worker? What signal are you sending? Um, and are you dissuading good people from coming? And are you encouraging bad people to stay? And what are the long-term effects of that kind of leadership? Again, uh, I think the Department of Justice is an incredibly resilient place. Uh, when you talk about the culture of that workforce, I actually think it's an extraordinarily good culture. I don't think it is corrupted by one bad administration, but I worry what it looks like if you had you know, 30 years of that. Uh, thank God we don't. And by the way, I have served uh, under you know, attorneys general from both parties, presidents of both parties, I was appointed to one job by President Bush into another job by President Obama. I am an absolute raging moderate, um, and I have served happily under both administrations. Uh, so this is not a political thing at all. But what we just saw was deeply destructive and highly unusual, uh, and I worry about uh, what the long-term effects would have been had there been a second term. I want to ask you about Bill Barr. To the extent, I don't know to the extent you know him or how much you overlapped with him in your own career, but I'm curious, you know, he was attorney general in the early 90s once before, and now again. Is there an arc to him? Has he changed or is he really the same person operating under a different political atmosphere and culture because of the administration that he served now, how it compared to the administration uh, of George H.W. Bush? It's a great question, Ed. So um, let me state publicly for what feels like the you know, 47th time how wrong I was about Bill Barr. Um, I know him slightly, uh, not well, uh, but my perception when he came in was that it was a good thing for the Department of Justice because as I described him on NBC, he was an institutionalist. He knew our department, he knew it well, and he would um, uh, you know, sort of understand the role of career people in helping attorneys general make difficult decisions. I was completely wrong. Now, I don't have visibility into lots of things he did on a daily basis, right? Maybe he got most of that stuff right. But on the high profile stuff, his characterization of the Mueller report was deeply disingenuous. His intervention on behalf of Michael Flynn was... Um, to put it mildly, uh, corrupt, um, shocking. Uh, same too, I thought, with his intervention on behalf of Roger Stone. Now, maybe there are a thousand other decisions he got right, um, but uh, I, I could not believe what I saw coming out of um, the office of the Attorney General of the United States. And one way, you know, the canary in the coal mine here, one way you gauge that is by how um, career men and women react and to see assistant U.S. attorneys, my old job, um, to see them, uh, you know, resign from cases, in one instance, resign from the Department of Justice, uh, is really quite telling. So, you know, how do I account for it? I really don't. I'm mystified. But when I saw him mischaracterize Mueller's work, I knew we were in for a rough ride. When you were in uh, a position where you disagreed with the administration, um, you know, you took a completely different approach. Uh, you wrote a letter to, you were the acting uh, administrator of the DEA, mm -hmm. and you wrote a letter to your own staff. The president had just said, hey, listen, if you're a cop and you're, you've got a, 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 someone that you're putting into a car, rough them up a little bit. He had, he had just encouraged uh, violence by the police. He said, be rough with suspects. You wrote an internal uh, memo where you said um, the president in remarks delivered yesterday in New York condoned police misconduct regarding the treatment of individuals placed under arrest by law enforcement. I write to offer a strong reaffirmation of the operating principles to which we, as law enforcement professionals, adhere. I write because we have an obligation to speak out when something is wrong. That's what law enforcement officers do. That's what you do. We fix stuff. The Washington Post, their editorial board came out after you wrote that letter and it was leaked. And they said a divided nation gets moral guidance, but not for, from Trump. 
my question to you is what compelled you to take such a stand? And I think what surprises me, what I really want to know is why do you think after Trump and Barr are out of office, we haven't had more people from justice step forward and say, I was approached, I was asked to handle this case in this way, and it was wrong. Because your point is, your point in all of this is, if we, if we even have the perception of impropriety, we're in trouble. So why not do the work? I, I'm just not sure that sitting around and saying, well, we historically haven't done that is going to be sufficient when we've injected this air of impropriety into the Justice Department. And I'm wondering if you see it similarly and whether or not some people should come forward and speak up the way you did. Yeah, so I'm loath to tell people that they should speak up or they shouldn't speak up. I was often asked, you know, do you stay in an administration that you disagree with and try to be a guardrail or do you leave and make a public protest? And I got to tell you, Perry, I think it's a very personal decision. So let me back up a little bit. First, disagreements happen all the time in government, right? And you close the door and you have it out in the conference room and, you know, people, you know, Sometimes it gets very heated and you, you, you have your discussion and you make a decision and you move on. You don't resign every time there's a disagreement. If you'd resigned every time there was a disagreement, you'd resign, you know, three times before lunch every single day. So it's not about disagreements. It's not even about strong disagreements. Uh, the reason I wrote that um, email, that memo to my entire workforce at the DEA was because what the president has said had said to a group of police officers in New York in the summer of 2017 was abhorrent. It wasn't a disagreement. I abhorred what he said. We spend so much time in law enforcement trying to build bridges to communities that we serve. And by the way, we have a special obligation to people who are in our custody. We obviously don't approve of their conduct. We've arrested them, right? But it's not for us to punish them and certainly not in the back of a police car, for God's sakes. Uh, That's for the court and for a judge to do if we convict them by proof beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury down the road. And so what the president said was so bad, um, I thought that I had to say something. But I got to tell you, it was not an easy decision because the last thing you want to do as the leader of an organization is drag your organization into a political contest, right? And so... Uh, I knew very likely that what I wrote would be leaked. It was. I knew as a result that I would have to resign. I did. All that's fine. But I have never criticized other people for making different decisions or acting in different ways, right? You all, everyone has to decide for himself or herself what their line is, why they stay, why they go, what good they hope to accomplish while they are there. I am certain that there are people who stayed and did really important things um, to help guard our democracy. I'm certain there are people who left um, and left in protest and illuminated things that needed to be illuminated. That is a decision everyone has to make for themselves. Just to go back a little bit, um, you know, we began this conversation talking about the common thread that runs through all the guests uh, that you've had on your show on, on, on the oath. And it really strikes me, um, the, you know, the, 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 it takes one to know one. I mean, you're one of these people um, who clearly has committed themselves to public service and, and, for good gov- and, and to good governance. What is your story and path towards working in, in government? I mean, I don't imagine a kid growing up anywhere uh, aspires to be the acting administrator of the DEA um, when they grow up. So, so what was your path to getting there? Yeah, I, did, I didn't aspire to that. I was asked to take on that job by the attorney general and the deputy attorney general, Loretta Lynch and Sally Yates. And um, this is something Bob Mueller said in my interview with him. When you're asked to do something, the answer is yes. Um, and so that's how I ended up running the DEA. But that's not what I aspired to. And I don't mean that as a knock on the DEA. Wonderful people. Um, my, uh, my folks were, uh, uh, you know, I, I was incredibly blessed, uh, Ed, with wonderful parents, 
neither of whom went to college. I was the oldest sibling and I was the first in my family, including among aunts and uncles and all but a few cousins to go to college. And I didn't have any, you know, I had loving parents, but they, they didn't sort of guide me on any sort of professional path. They were always proud of me and they were always supportive, but neither of them ever said, you know, you should go to law school or you should be a prosecutor or you should think about the FBI. So I think I literally stumbled down all of those paths. Um, and it took me a while to figure out that I wanted to go to law school. Uh, and when I did, it was because I wanted to be a federal prosecutor. And then I got lucky. Uh, you know, I got into the Eastern District of Virginia as an assistant U.S. attorney, and I never looked back. I absolutely loved it. I had this um, weird way of describing a good job, which is what I call the Sunday night test. I don't know if I made it up. Um, maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. But it's how I think about it. How do you feel about life on Sunday night? And I used to love Sunday nights because on Monday I got to go to work. Uh, I didn't get paid a lot to do it either but I worked with people that I really admired uh, with a mission that was important to me uh, and that I was proud to be a part of. And so I don't quite know why I settled on that path, uh, only that I'm really, really glad that I did because I spent most of my professional life, you know, passing the Sunday night test with flying colors. You know, um, as I said earlier, I find your podcast to be such a love letter to the country and given your dedication to it and your commitment to it, for all of us, January 6th was a heartbreaking day. But I have to believe that for you and for your fellow colleagues in the federal government, and specifically in the Department of Justice, had to be particularly heartbroken. And I wonder how you think we look, we're sharing these borders with these folks no matter what. And so we've got to figure this out. Um, and I'm wondering how you think we do figure it out, how, how we do move forward when you have Republicans to this day, I'm talking about Republican members of Congress, who will not acknowledge that Joe Biden won a free and fair election. They'll acknowledge that he's the president of the United States, but they won't acknowledge that he won a free and fair election. I'm just wondering how you, how you think we move forward. That's a great question. Uh, I wish I had an easy answer. I found the events of uh, January 6th, the riot, the deadly riot at the Capitol, um, shocking, but not surprising, right? I mean, there's a history of um, white supremacism and white nationalism in this country that goes back, uh, you know, uh, decades, more than a century, obviously, um, you know, uh, and We've had these people um, living among us, but usually in the shadows. And the notion that a president of the United States would um, give them sustenance uh, is what made this materially different. You know, I've been doing a little bit of reading lately about some um, you know, uh, white supremacist groups. I was reading about the order, which uh, originated in the state of Washington in 1983 and 1984, a white supremacist group, neo-Nazi group, um, anti-Semitic. Uh, they were opposed to anybody of color. They wanted to establish sort of their own state in the Pacific Northwest. As you re may recall, they murdered a, a Jewish radio um, host named Alan Berg outside his home in Denver. Um, so this is not new. People often think back to the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, Timothy McVeigh, but it started long before McVeigh. It started long before the order and the murder of Allen Berg. Uh, it started long before Charlottesville and long before the January 6th riot. Again, what's new is a president um, not sort of immediately, uh, affirmatively condemning that sort of behavior. And so how does it change? I mean, I think we talked a little bit about this earlier. Uh, it, it has to change at the top. We have to drive these... Um, uh, this vermin back into the uh, shadows of, uh, you know, back into the corners of American life. Uh, they'll always exist. There'll always be some of it. Um, but it also in some ways goes, goes back to that conversation we were having about, you know, the, the bell curve of life, that there are some number of people in the middle susceptible to messages from either side. And so what message we send is critically important. 
you know, do we make it go away? Do we eradicate that kind of, you know, uh, white nationalism, neo-Nazism, white supremacy? No, I don't think we'll ever eliminate it, but we can drive it back into the shadows with the right type of leadership. Now, you know, to your other point, uh, we are seeing some very mixed messages from some fringes of the Republican Party, uh, which is also disturbing. Look, we've always had fringe elements in our political parties. Again, not new, but the notion that we are not you know, robustly condemning this type of behavior um, and doing it from both sides of the aisle is also disturbing to me. Are you, um, because Merrick Garland has said that he thinks the biggest threat we face is domestic terrorism, and you mentioned Oklahoma City, he was the prosecutor in, mm-hmm. in that bombing. Do you feel like, oof, man, we got it right with the appointment of Merrick Garland as attorney general. You feel like that there are very few, if any, that, that would, would hit this moment in time as well as he should be able to. We got it right. Um, I think, you know, Merrick Garland was a, was a terrific choice. I think Sally Yates would have been a terrific choice. There were others under discussion who I think would have been uh, superb. You know what they have in common, though, Perry, is that they came up through the justice system. Now, I know I said that earlier about Bill Barr, and I turned out to be precisely wrong. Um, but by and large, uh, when uh, you're talking about leaders like Sally Yates or Merrick Garland, who have lived in the Justice Department, who have been line prosecutors, who have done that work, um, you know, and understand the historical importance of the department and the necessary independence of the department, um, yeah, uh, you know, th- those are the kinds of people we need leading us right now. So it was an excellent choice. Uh, I am, uh, I know I, I said before that Bill Barr would serve us well and would be an institutionalist, and I was dead wrong. Um, but I'm willing to say it again with respect to Merrick Garland. Um, an inspired choice, an, institu- an institutionalist, and I believe he will lead us well. Well, Chuck, you have a, a great podcast. And you're probably having um, a lot of fun doing media. Uh, But I'm curious, what kind of opportunity would it have to be for us to see you back in public service working in the government? Well, I don't know how much fun I'm having doing media, to tell you the (laughs) truth, Ed. And here's why I say that. I mean, I feel privileged to have a little bit of a platform. I'm astonished that anyone would give it to me. Um, and it's probably the last, if I were to make a list of a thousand things I would never do in my life, it would absolutely be in the top two or three. Um, you know, growing up as a prosecutor, the only time we ever talked was in court. That's where you talk. Otherwise, you don't say a thing. Um, and so it's kind of still an out-of-body experience for me to be, you know, a member of the media or a commentator or to have a podcast. It's all really, really, really weird. Um, you know, I've been in and out of government now three times. I think I've taken the oath nine times. Uh, I've administered it to hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, I would take it again if someone asked me to do a particular job and they thought and I thought I could do it well. I'm not dying to go back in because I also recognize, Ed, that there's a lot of um, folks coming in um, who are similarly, you know, motivated to serve well and will serve well. And I'm really glad for that. I also think other people need a shot. So I loved being in public service. I would consider doing it again, uh, but I'm also happy to work on my tennis game. (laughs) So the podcast is called The Oath. The host is Chuck Rosenberg. Uh, Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, Thanks to both of you for actually having thoughtful, civil conversations. Um, It's really a pleasure. Uh, That's what I try and do. And um, to be asked to be on your podcast and to uh, have a thoughtful, civil conversation with the two of you is a real privilege. Thank you. We appreciate you saying that because Perry and I uh, really believe in the power of good conversation, good faith conversation. Agreed. Thank you very much. I know I said it a few times, but I love his love for the country. That guy is so first rate. He's exactly who you would want working in government. And he's not for circumstances that are unfortunate. And it's just, he's so first rate. You know what I was thinking about? 
while we were having the conversation, you know, because the theme of his podcast is uh, the oath of office, you know, speaking to people who've taken that oath and what it means to them. It got me thinking about the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, you say the Pledge of Allegiance, we learn it in school, and I don't think people really think about what it is they're saying. They're sort of just going through it. And I remember the first time I thought about the words. I was in the seventh grade and had a teacher named Miss Bird, and we talked about the pledge. And just think for a moment, you know, I am pledging my allegiance to this flag and to the republic for which this flag stands for. I am pledging my allegiance. I think people just go through it and they don't think about what they're saying, but every citizen is exposed to that oath. And I think it would be useful to really think about the words and think about what we're saying because we're going through this period of time and we're having these conversations over and over again, mainly because we feel so concerned about the health of our democracy, the, the health of our, our, our civic health, you know, and you see examples all around us where citizens have not really shown their allegiance to the Republic for which this flag stands. Talking to Chuck Rosenberg about people who have taken the oath of office and work in government really made me think about that. Yeah, look, I think that's a, a beautiful way to look at it, which is that, you know, we have all claimed that we have signed up for a certain kind of oath, you know, different than the oath that federal workers take where they're pledging their allegiance to the Constitution. But still, you know, an oath where we're saying that we're, we understand the not just the rights that come with being an American citizen, but the responsibilities that come with being an American citizen. I know people love to talk about their rights, but I think we need to focus a lot more on the responsibilities. And I think that that's why I love this podcast is because he's humanizing the federal government and the work that is done in the name of service. And, you know, the reward uh, for many of those workers is cheap, inexpensive, easy disdain. And uh, that's really sad because their work merits better than that from us. It requires more thought than simply some flippant, you know, by Felicia remark. Um, It's much more profound and the obligations are taxing and demanding and should be celebrated. I agree. We're lucky to have them and we're lucky to have people like Chuck Rosenberg. And we're very lucky to be able to do this and talk to these people. We are. It's been great. Well, thanks for listening. You can find our podcast on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. And please follow us on Twitter at head underscore heart underscore pod. Leave us comments. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. And if you have ideas of who you think we should be talking to, go ahead and tweet us. Hey.